Good morning. Uh, today's reading from Matthew 27:45 to 54. Now from the sixth hours there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani?" That is, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken?" And some of the bystanders, hearing it, and said, "This, this man is calling Elijah." And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it one on reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, "Wait." Let us see whether, whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yelled up his spirit. And behold, the curtain and the temple was torn into two, from the top to bottom, and the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs were opened, and my bud and many bodies of the saints who, who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into a holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. And truly, this was Son of God. This is the word of Thanks, Hank, for the scripture reading. So this year, if you have been here at the bridge, we have been going through the story of the Bible together as a church. We've been seeing that it's not just a series of disconnected stories, but it's one big story that has various themes running through it. It takes place over the course of different acts and scenes, but overall it is one big story. And I don't remember if you remember back to high school English class. Some of you are in high school now, I know. So maybe you guys will be better at this than everyone else. But if you've ever been to a high school English class, your teacher probably showed you a chart that looks like this. Do you guys remember that from high school English class? Do you know what this is? Anyone remember? So this is, I covered the title so you can't cheat and just read it. This is the classic story arc. So any story that you ever read in a book or when you watch a movie or a TV show or a play or anything like that, some variation of this is happening in that story. So you start with a scene that, that's the opening scene, it introduces the setting, some of the main characters, and then something happens to create tension and crisis. And throughout the story, the crisis builds and gets higher and higher until you reach the climax of the story, which is the high point of the tension. It's the turning point in the story. Once you've passed the climax, you know how the story is gonna end. You know whether it's gonna be a happy ending or a sad ending. And after the climax, it's just the resolution. You, you sort of let the thing that you know is gonna happen play out so you see exactly how it all plays out. That's pretty much every story you've ever seen or heard is gonna follow some variation on this big pattern. And the Bible also follows this pattern, not because it's just trying to be a good story, but because God hardwired into the universe that this is how good stories work. And that's how the best story, the story of him rescuing us and saving us is gonna work too. So in the Bible, this opening scene happens in Genesis chapter one. We are introduced to God. God makes the world. And so we're told who put us here. We're told how he put us here. But a setting in itself isn't a good story. You need movement, you need tension. And that comes in the Bible in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they're living in paradise. Everything is perfect. They have one command from God. You can eat from any tree you want except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat from that one, you'll die. And Adam and Eve listen to a lie that says, actually, God doesn't want what's best for you. God doesn't care about you. He wants to hold you back to keep you from becoming the fullness of who you could really be. 
And so they eat from the tree to try to become more like God. And sin enters the world. They don't physically die in that moment, but they're cut off from God, which the Bible in John 17 defines life as knowing God. And so this, this distance is introduced to our relationship with God. Death enters the world, spiritual death that impacts every single part of our lives. And the rest of the Bible up to where we are today is, is just this building tension. It's, it's series after series of crisis that's, that's building and getting bigger. So Genesis 4 through 11, we have our first attempt to solve this problem of sin and get back to God. Human effort. And you know what human effort does? Crashes and burns again and again and again. It just gets worse and worse till like within seven chapters, you realize this is not going to work. We cannot fix this problem on our own. So in Genesis 12, God comes and he makes a promise to a man named Abraham. He says, I'm going to fix this problem. You guys can't do it. I will do it through your family, Abraham. I will bless the entire earth. But he doesn't say exactly how. So we're waiting and we're waiting. The book of Exodus comes. There's Abraham's descendants have grown into an entire nation who are slaves and God sets them free to bring them to a promised land. And we're like, all right, maybe this is how God's going to do it. Maybe this is is the turning point where we know after this, everything's going to be okay. And of course, the Israelites, again, turn from God. They rebel against him. They bring more trouble on themselves. And you realize that's not the solution. The Israelites settle in the promised land. And after a few hundred years there of things being a total mess, they think maybe a king would fix our problem. Maybe the king is going to be the turning point who's going to make everything better in the world. And again, the kings just make things worse. They lead the nation further into idolatry. It's a complete mess. It's so much of a mess that eventually Israel is sent into exile. They're slaves in a foreign land once again. But while they're in exile, the prophets come and the prophets start telling them about these amazing promises God has for them as a nation in the future. And so you think, okay, once the exile is done, they'll go back home. God's going to set up this nation. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. And they get back from the exile. And again, there's just issue after issue after issue. And you realize that's not the solution either. The whole Bible has been building up the tension, building up crisis after crisis to show that for humanity to be rescued, God needs to step in and do something supernatural to rescue us. And he does that, as we've seen the past few weeks, by putting on flesh, stepping into the story as a human being himself to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. In Jesus, God put on human flesh. He lived the life of perfect obedience and trust in God that we were all supposed to live. But as he did this, the people around him hated him for it. He faced increasing resistance to the point where last week we saw that the religious leaders of his day were planning to murder him because they hated him so badly. And it's at this point in the story where we pick up today the death of Jesus. That's the climax of the Bible story. This is the turning point. This is, once this has passed, we know whether the story of the Bible is going to have a happy ending or a sad ending. This moment, the death of Jesus, is the turning point in the story of the Bible, where once this has passed, we know how the story ends. And so today we're going to look at this moment, the climax of the story of the Bible, the death of Jesus. And what we're going to see is that there is power in the death of Jesus. We're going to see the horror of sin, the love of God, and the power of the cross. But first, let's pray. God, you are such an amazing Savior and rescuer who's come to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. God, we, oh, we owe you such praise, such honor, such glory that we, 
if we just spent our whole lives praising you, we couldn't even scratch the surface of what you deserve. God, I pray that as we look at the death of Jesus today, that our hearts would be gripped by your truth, that we'd be drawn to love you more deeply and trust you with all that we are and all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, we're going to look at the horror of sin. So as I just mentioned, the religious leaders of his day had decided they needed to kill Jesus. And the passage we picked up on, or that we're looking at today, picks up after Jesus is already on the cross, on the way to dying. But I think for us to really understand and appreciate the weight of this passage, it would be good to recap a little bit of what happened leading up to this point. So Thursday night, Jesus has a meal with his disciples, the Last Supper. He tells them at this meal, one of you is going to betray me. You're going to hand me over to be arrested and I'm going to be killed. And the disciples are totally confused. They don't get what's going on. But after dinner, Jesus brings the disciples out to pray in this garden where they would go to pray all the time. He tells them, pray for me. And he goes over to the side and he starts praying, God, if there's any other way for you to save humanity besides what I'm about to go to, please let that happen. Please let that happen. But not my will, but yours be done. He comes back to check on his friends, see how they're doing what they're praying, and realizes they've all fallen asleep. So he tells them, guys, wake up. This is important. This is an important moment. Pray for me. Repeats it again a couple more times. And each time his, his best friends, when he needs them the most, just fall asleep on him. It's starting out as a rough night. But as soon as he finishes praying, Judas, one of his 12 closest followers, leads a troop of soldiers into this garden to arrest Jesus. They take him and put him on trial before the Jewish religious leaders. Now remember, the Jewish religious leaders had already decided Jesus needs to die. This was not a genuine trial. This was, we've already decided he's guilty. We just need to go through the process so that we can make it look like we did it properly. Once the sun comes up and the Jewish religious leaders have decided that Jesus needs to die, they bring him to the Roman governor of the area, a man named Pilate. Now the Jews were allowed to operate their own legal system. But the one thing they couldn't do is give someone the death sentence. Rome held on to that right as a way of reminding them who's really in charge here. And so the Jewish religious leaders, they want, they want Jesus dead, but they need to get permission from Rome to kill him. So they send Jesus to Pilate to get this death sentence. And Pilate says, I don't think he's actually guilty, but the Jewish people won't leave him alone. So Pilate realizes there's another Roman official here who Jesus kind of falls under his jurisdiction. I'll send Jesus to him. Let Jesus be his problem. And that guy sends Jesus right back to Pilate. So the ball is in Pilate's court again. And Pilate does whatever he can to try to release Jesus. But eventually the Jewish mob keeps calling for Jesus' death. And Pilate realizes if, if I want to save this guy's life, I'm putting my own political career on the line and it's not worth it. So he hands Jesus over to the mob to die. And as this whole process has been going on, Jesus has been beaten repeatedly. He's been spit on. He's had his beard ripped out of his face. I can't imagine how painful that would be. He hasn't been able to sleep at all because he's been dragged all across town all night long. He's watched as his closest friends have lied about whether they even ever met him before. It has been, it has been a bad enough night that I think if this happened to any of us here, this in and of itself would probably qualify as the worst night of our lives. But for Jesus, this is just the beginning. As soon as Jesus is condemned to die, they, they waste no time in sending him off to his death. Now, just to give some perspective, he's been dragged all over town to different trials, different places to be beaten and put on trial and accused. And 
All of this happens over the scan, uh, span of about nine to 12 hours. It is happening fast, very, very fast. In the ancient world, different empires basically had a running contest to see who could come up with the most cruel and brutal and horrible way to kill someone. Did you know that? They came up with all sorts of horrible things to do to kill people because they wanted a way of deterring people from rebelling against them. They said, if, if you rebel against us, we're going to make a show of you and show everyone else how miserable your life will be so that they don't want to do the same thing you just did. And the Romans, their cruel, horrible form of execution was the cross. The cross is arguably the most horrible, the most painful way to die ever developed in human history. Before going to the cross, you would be beaten with a whip that had metal spikes on the end. This beating alone was bad enough that many people died from blood loss before they even got to the cross. And Jesus went through this beating. After they beat you within an inch of your life, they would take the cross beam of your cross and they would have you put your hands up like this and they would tie it behind you and make you carry it to where you were going to die. Now, remember, you've just been beaten within an inch of your life. You're not very strong. You have a heavy piece of wood strapped to your back. What do you think is going to happen as you walk there? You're probably going to trip and fall. You can't catch yourself because your hands are tied back. The wood's going to crush you. And as if that wasn't bad enough, sometimes the Roman soldiers, just to entertain themselves, would tie a rope around your ankle so that as you were walking, they could just yank it and make you fall. It was horrible, horrible. They would have you carry this crossbeam down the main street of your town so that everyone around you could come and just tell you one more time what a piece of scum you were, how excited they were to watch you die a miserable, cruel death. As Jesus was carrying this crossbeam down the street, he stumbled and fell. He was so weak that they had to get someone else to carry it for him because he physically wasn't strong enough to keep going with it. Eventually, you'd reach the place where you were going to die. They would strip you completely naked to add to the shame and the humiliation that you were going to face. And then they would attach you to the cross. Now, for different people, they attached you to the cross in different ways. With Jesus, we're told that they nailed him to the cross. The nails would go into the pressure points on your wrist and your ankles so that it was absolutely the most painful place to be suspended from. And then they would stand the cross upright and drop it into a hole in the ground so that it just sort of tore at those nerve endings a little bit more. And you'd be suspended there, unable to breathe, unless you lifted yourself up to take a breath. And of course, every time you lift yourself up, what's happening to those nerve endings? The nail, again, is ripping against it. And it was in extreme situations, people could be on the cross for days before they finally died. The way the cross killed you is that eventually your lungs filled up with blood and you suffocated on your own blood. It was a horrible, horrible, cruel way to die. They actually, it was such a horrible way to die. They came up with a new word to describe the pain of the cross. Have you ever heard the word excruciating? That, that word was made up to describe the pain of being killed on a cross because they realized there was no word in their vocabulary that could adequately express how painful this experience was. And we come to Jesus in today's passage as he's already been hanging on the cross for three hours. He's in intense physical pain and agony. We see him crying out, expressing his agony. And as terrible as the cross is, if it was merely a physical pain, you could make an argument 
that Jesus is actually being weaker than many other people in facing this pain. Lots of people throughout history have, have faced comparable levels of pain and handled it in ways that appear tougher or stronger. For example, the apostle Peter, about 30 years after this event, was arrested by the Romans and he was sentenced to die on a cross. But rather than just go through it, rather than be upset about it, you know what Peter did? Peter said, no, I'm not worthy to die in the same way that my Lord and Savior died. So I need you to flip me upside down on the cross, add some extra pain, add some extra agony, just so that I don't have the honor of dying in the same way as Jesus. Peter, he's, he's sentenced to die in the same way as Jesus. And rather than crying out in agony, no, he's like, give me more pain. So why is it that Jesus is in such agony here? Is Peter just tougher than Jesus? No, that's not the case. Actually, if we rewind a bit, we see that Jesus has been in agony, not just since he got on the cross, but even before. When he went to pray in the garden with his followers, he was sweating drops of blood. That only happens when you are in intense emotional agony. Why all the agony for Jesus? Because the cross isn't just about physical pain for Jesus. For Jesus, the cross is also spiritual torture. The Bible tells us in several different places about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. I'll read you a couple examples. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isaiah is saying the cross was Jesus being crushed in our place, bearing a punishment that we deserve so that you and I never ever have to face it. Or another one, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' death pays a price that sets us free. One more, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange happening at the cross that Jesus takes all of our sin, all of our rebellion against God onto himself, all of the separation from God that we deserve because of our rebellion. Jesus takes it on himself and in its place gives us his perfection. And these verses aren't the only ones that show the cross is about Jesus paying a price. It's all over the Bible. The cross is not just about physical pain for Jesus. It's about paying a spiritual price, a price that he didn't owe, but you and I did. Jesus stepped in to answer the big question of the Bible. How can humanity get back to God? And the answer is we get back to God by Jesus stepping in and paying the price for our sin so that we can be forgiven and set free. But if that's the price that it takes for us to be set free. What does that tell us about the horror of our sin? It's absolutely horrible. You know, many people in the world today think the cross can't really be about Jesus paying a price on our behalf because a God who would demand that type of, of payment from someone would be a monster. But actually, if you think about it, on a human level, the greater the authority of the person whose rule you break, the greater the consequences for breaking those rules. Like, if if my sons, if one of them tells the other one to do something and they don't do it, they're not going to get in trouble for that because the brothers have no authority over one another. But if I tell one of my sons to do something and they disobey me, they're going to get in trouble because I do have authority over them. If a police officer tells you to do something and you disobey what the police officer says, you could end up in jail 
because the police officer has a higher level of authority over us. If the leader of a nation tells you to do something and you disobey badly enough, that could be considered treason and you could get the death sentence. The higher the authority of the person giving the rule that's being broken, the greater the consequences for breaking that rule. And if that's true on a human level, how much more true is that on the ultimate level of the universe with God who has ultimate control and ultimate authority over everyone? If a sin or a crime against your country or the country's leader is big enough that you get the death sentence for breaking it, how much more of a consequence do we deserve for breaking the creator's rules? The consequence of our sin is banishment from his presence forever. Sin is horrible. And sin at its most fundamental level is just us saying to God, leave me alone. Don't tell me how to live my life. Let me do it my way because I know better than you. And since God is the source of all joy and peace and love and hope in the universe, when we say, leave me alone, let me live my life my way, we're saying, don't give me joy. Don't give me hope. Don't give me peace. Don't give me love. We're cutting ourselves off from all these things. It's not unjust for God to give us these consequences. It's actually him giving us exactly what we asked for. And this passage shows that God is working to judge sin as Jesus hung on the cross. The Bible tells us that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. But you notice what happens as Jesus hangs on the cross in verse 45. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land till the ninth hour. In the Bible, darkness is constantly a picture of God's judgment on sin. So you think about the exodus from Egypt, the 10 plagues. One of the plagues was darkness over the entire land. It was God's way of saying, I am not happy with what you're doing by keeping my people as slaves here. Let them go. When Jesus teaches about hell, one of the main pictures that he uses to describe hell is outer darkness. It's the separation from God. And as Jesus faces the punishment for our sin, there are three hours of darkness that come over the land. God, the source of light and joy, turns away from Jesus as Jesus bears the penalty for our sin. For the first time in eternity, Jesus experiences separation from the Father. He experiences the wrath of God instead of the love of God. On the cross, Jesus suffers not only physical pain, but the ultimate horror of being forsaken by God and cut off from his presence. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that is the price of sin. It's horrible. It's destructive. It brings death and judgment. And the fact that Jesus was enduring not just physical agony, but spiritual agony in our place, in addition to his physical pain, explains why he was in such deep and prolonged agony because sin is horrible. But the cross also shows us that our sin is not the end of the story because the cross shows us the love of God. Despite the horror of our sin, despite the punishment we deserve for it, God still loves us. Despite the separation from him we deserve, God doesn't give up on us. Have you ever considered how amazing it is that God sent Jesus to rescue us because he loves us? God's love doesn't give up on us no matter how far we run from him. He's willing to give literally anything to rescue us because his love for us is so great. You know, some people, again, they say, Jesus can't really die for us in this way. God can't send Jesus to rescue us like this because if he did, that would be divine child abuse. It would be the father just punishing his son unnecessarily for something the kid doesn't ignore, doesn't deserve. But that line of thinking 
ignores the amazing biblical reality of the Trinity. The Trinity, as the Christian belief, says there's one God. He has eternally existed as three distinct persons. Within the Trinity, there's the Father, the Son, or Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. They're all equally God, all equal in dignity and worth, all equally worthy of our worship. And the doctrine of the Trinity means that Jesus is not just a helpless child who's left to do what his Father wants and whatever he's told by those in charge. No, the doctrine of the Trinity means Jesus is God in human flesh. He has existed from the beginning. He is the one who made the world. He is equal in worth and dignity with the Father. He didn't submit to the Father's will because he was ignorant and didn't know any better. He didn't submit to the Father's will because he was powerless and incapable of helping himself. Jesus goes to the cross and submits to the Father's will because he is in complete alignment with the Father's plan. The the, God loves us so deeply, despite our sin, that God sends his son and the son comes himself to rescue us. This is not divine child abuse. This is absolute Trinitarian love for you and me. What does that mean for us? If God loves us this deeply, it means there's nothing you've ever done that puts you outside the reach of his love. Despite how horrible our sin is, God is not content to let us just suffer and wallow in it and face its consequences. He is willing to go through anything necessary to get us back. The cross is what was necessary, but he offers us free salvation and forgiveness as a gift through the cross. It's a gift. All that's left to do for us is believe. When Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's facing the reality of being forsaken by God so that you and I never have to. Is that amazing? It might sometimes feel like God has abandoned us or forsaken us, but the cross is the ultimate proof that if we trust in Jesus, that's never, ever the case for us. God loves us so deeply that he would rather reject his only son than reject us. So he sent his son to earth to die for us and rescue us and save us. And did the plan work? Let's look at the power of the cross to find out. You know, some of the people at the cross actually thought that this plan didn't work. Jesus, when he called out to God, they thought he was calling for Elijah and they said, oh, if he's really who he says he is, God will come down and rescue him. Let's just stand back and wait and watch and see what happens. They thought Jesus is pathetic. Jesus is a fake who's finally been revealed for the fraud that he truly is. But as Jesus dies, something happens. Something amazing happens. We're actually told in verses 51 through 53, three things happened when Jesus died and all of them show the power of the cross. First, Matthew tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now the the temple had several curtains in it and scholars sort of debate which curtain exactly it was that tore, but most think that it was the, the farthest inside curtain. Now, the temple was the dwelling place of God on earth. It had different sections to it. And the most middle, hidden, inside, secluded place was called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. This was the place where God's presence dwelled among his people. And and as we've seen throughout this year, the temple is an awesome gift because our sin separates us from God. But the temple was God saying, I want to come live among my people again. And God came in this building to live among his people, but it was still not complete because there was this one room where God lived and no one was allowed in that room. One time a year, one person could come into that room after going through an elaborate series of sacrifices and preparations. They had to basically go in and get out as fast as they could or else they were in danger of dying. And when Jesus died... 
the curtain that separated this room from the rest of the temple was torn apart, meaning that access to God's presence was no longer restricted. It's no longer that one person once a year can come in and be in God's presence. It's that anyone, anywhere, anytime who trusts in Jesus now has access to God. Jesus' death gives us access to God. And notice Matthew says the curtain tore from top to bottom. This curtain was 18 meters tall. It was very tall curtain. If it had torn from bottom to top, it could have been people coming in and ripping at it, but no one could reach the top of that curtain. For it to tear from top to bottom, it's God doing it. And it tore completely apart. What had once been one curtain now was two. It was God's way of saying, there is nothing anymore that blocks you from coming into my presence because Jesus has died for you. The cross is powerful because it gives us access to God. The second thing that happens when Jesus dies is that there is an earthquake. And Israel is on a fault line. It sometimes gets earthquakes, but this was no normal earthquake. It tells us the earthquake was so intense that the rocks were ripped apart. In Greek, the word for the rocks splitting in this verse is the same as the word for the temple curtain being torn in two earlier in the verse. Matthew is saying this earthquake was so intense that the rocks tore apart like a piece of fabric. That's an intense, powerful earthquake. Creation is, is shaken and screaming out in response to the power of the cross. And the third thing that happens when Jesus died, Matthew says many dead people who had trusted in God during their lives were raised from the dead and came into the holy city. Now, this is a weird verse. This is actually the only record we have of this happening. None of the other gospel writers talk about it. No one from history that we know of talks about it. So we have no idea what was going on here other than these like two verses that Matthew tells us. We don't know how many people were raised. We don't know who they were. We don't know how long they had been dead. We don't know how long they stayed alive. We don't know whether they were a temporary resurrection like Lazarus that we looked at last week or whether this was like the type of resurrection that Jesus went through. We don't know any of this beyond what Matthew says here, but Matthew is trying to show us something incredibly powerful by including these details. Matthew wants us to see that the death of Jesus brings life. Matthew cannot mention the death of Jesus without in the next breath mentioning new life. People who were dead got up and walked out of their tombs because Jesus died and rose again. The cross is powerful because it brings new life. And of course, Matthew only hints at it here, but, but it's true for Jesus too. The cross is not the end for Jesus. Just like these people get up and walk out of their tombs, Jesus does too. He, he doesn't go into depth discussing it in this passage. He talks about it in the next chapter. But we see in verse 53, Matthew talking about after his resurrection, Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. Jesus is able to give life both physically and spiritually through his death because he didn't stay dead, but he conquered death. And this new life, it's a life of confidence because we now have access to God. It's a life of freedom because our status before God is given to us as a gift, not earned through our accomplishments. It's a life where we no longer need to fear the penalty for our sins because that penalty has already been paid in full. Church, the cross is powerful. And the events that followed Jesus' death were so powerful that someone at the cross noticed them. And it was probably the last people we would have expected to notice what was going on. See, Jesus was a Jewish man. 
He was killed for claiming to be the king of the Jews. He was killed just outside Jerusalem, the Jewish capital. He was condemned to death by an angry Jewish mob. He was mocked at the cross by a group of mostly Jewish people as he died. Jesus, as a Jewish man, you would expect that the Jewish people who were waiting for God's Messiah, who had all these promises, would be the first ones to recognize who he is and what he's doing. But that's not the case. There's another group at the cross, a group of Roman soldiers. These were hardened men. Their job was to kill. They had probably seen hundreds, if not thousands of people die over the course of their lives at their hands. And they were there for the sake of watching Jesus and the other criminals dying with him to make sure they stayed on the cross till they were actually dead. But as Jesus dies and nature screams out in response, these hardened soldiers realize there's something different and unique about this man. There's something unique about the way he died. There's something unique about the way the world responded to his death. I love the ESV translation, but sometimes it doesn't give the best translation. In verse 54, it says that when they saw everything that took place, they were filled with awe. That word filled with awe in the Greek literally means they were extremely frightened. They were terrified of what they saw because there was something so unique and different about the death of Jesus from the hundreds of other deaths they had witnessed over the course of their life that they were terrified. And they said, truly, this was the son of God. And for you and me today, that's the response we're invited to have to Jesus and his death. Our sin is horrible, but God hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't left us to the fate we deserve. He sent Jesus to die a powerful death so we can be rescued and forgiven, so we can once again have access to him and we can have true life. And the only way to receive this is as a gift. Jesus on the cross accomplished everything that's necessary for us to have a new relationship with God. There's nothing left for us to do except believe in him and receive the gift that he gives to us. Anything extra we try to contribute through our effort is just our way of telling God what you did isn't enough. It's trying to add to what Jesus has already done and it's unbelief. But God offers us salvation freely as a gift. If you've never received this gift before, I want to encourage you to receive it today. And if you have received this gift before, I want to encourage you to continue to receive it today. Keep believing, keep trusting. Keep believing that Jesus is your only hope and praise him for the power of the cross. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is the climax of the Bible story. It's the turning point. We know how the story ends because of the cross. We know that for those who trust in Jesus, the end of the story is life and joy and hope and peace. Because despite the horror of our sin, God's love for us is great. And the cross, it's more powerful than our failures. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the power of the cross. Thank you for the fact that Jesus conquered over death and sin, paid the price that we owe so that we can once again come into your presence as your children, loved, accepted. When you look at us because of Jesus, you're, you're not, you don't see us in our sin, but you are pleased with us, God. Not because of anything good in ourselves, but because Jesus has rescued us and you see his perfection when you look at us. God, I pray that you would help us believe that today. Take that truth and sink it into our hearts so that we can live with the confidence that you call us to have as people who have been rescued by Jesus. God, we love you, but help us to love you more. We trust you, but help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.